Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. So you could not have asked for a more beautiful day here in Grand Forks, North Dakota. In fact, one of the things that we are doing is uh, we're redoing the, the studio setup. We are transitioning over from what was a video studio and making it optimized for radio and, and, and broadcast. And as part of that, one of these weeks, I have to completely get out of here uh, while we make the final changes. Um, and it was I was considering doing that this week and having the guys come in here and finish the studio up. Um, and I was just going to go broadcast in my backyard because it is so gorgeous outside. Maybe that'll have to be a ne- next week thing because I got dragged into a little bit more in-depth show prep than I ordinarily would. Just because we are taking it easy does not mean that uh, we are slowing down on this show. No, sir. We are going full steam ahead with hours of meticulous research on open source related technology. Perfectly presented right here on the Ask Noah show. Last week, we talked in depth about freedom. And uh, we talked about freedom of speech. And I want to thank all of you, the audience who proved me right, because I was warned by numerous people that airing the interview last week was there was going to be blood in the streets. And there's more than one person told me, this is a dangerous thing for you to put on the air. This is not something that is, is going to be necessarily popular. It's not the right thing to do. And, and, I, and every time somebody told me that, I said, I just, no, no. These these people, the people that listen to the Ask Noah show, these people are rational people. And if they're presented with calm, collected opinions, whether they agree or not, they're going to be civil. And, you know, they you guys proved me right. Um, so thank you. Thank you for proving me right. Thank you for being the audience that I knew you guys were. But last week we talked about how great freedom of speech is and whether or not uh, you agreed with Paul. I think we all agreed that freedom of speech is important. Uh, And it's an important aspect in society. So free speech can be hindered just by the very presence of the intrusion of privacy. And just knowing that there's somebody there can alter what you do. And to that end, privacy then goes hand in hand with freedom of speech. I'm going to dig into that right after the first call. James from South Carolina starts out this hour. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thank you, Mr. Noah. Um, my name is James, as I indicated, and I was wondering if ZFS or XFS would be better as far as stability of the system. As far as stability. Well, I'll tell you what. Both are very stable file systems, and both are very much considered ready for full-time production use. The the question I would ask, it would not be a question of stability. It would be more a question of uh, one would be support. Is, you know, is it when something goes wrong, who in your circles are going to be able to help you out of a jam? And the second thing I would consider is the robustness of the file system. So, for example, XFS is, is a, in fact, is one of Chris's favorite file systems. Uh, a really great solid file system for, a, you know, a desktop or personal computer or something like that. But you want to go and put in... 70 hard drives inside of a a huge array and you want five different NAS boxes, you want them all connected together and and doing a bunch of things. Would I use XFS in that situation over ZFS? Probably not. ZFS is a very powerful file system for uh, network storage. And so anytime I was doing any sort of network storage at, at scale, I was going to use ZFS. Now, even on a small scale, even in my house where I have just four drives, could I get away with XFS? Would that work very well? Absolutely. 
Um, in fact, I could use it right natively on Linux, and it would it it would have more it has more of a track record of being a good system uh, running on Linux than than ZFS does. However, in my particular circle, I have Alan Jude, right? And uh, Alan Jude and and other people that know Alan and work with Alan, and and I understand the things that guide Alan, and because of that. Because everyone in my circle is using ZFS, because you know JB is using ZFS, we at AltaSpeed are using ZFS. Like I said, a lot of my friends and colleagues are using ZFS. My support circle is around ZFS. So even in small instances where I could get away with XFS, I'd still use ZFS. Does that make sense to you? It does. What what kind of deployment are you looking at putting this in? In my personal home. How big of a storage array are you looking at doing? Anywhere from three to four hard drives. Three to four hard drives. Yeah, you could go either way. You could go either way. You could do XFS or you could do ZFS. Let me ask you something. Do you think there's a, a reasonable chance that you would want to expand that down the road, that you'd want to grow that, that file system? Possibly. I might look at, I might look at ZFS. The, the other nice thing about ZFS is if you're looking if – if you accept that ZFS is there, – there is no – there are not a lot of advantages of XFS over ZFS unless you're talking about – uh, you know, a great track history working on Linux natively. If we accept that, and then we start looking at, well, there are appliance modules like, you know, uh, you know, uh, FreeNAS that are just a drop-in appliance thing that I can use to manage my my file server. And if it, you know, once you take the overhead of that, and I don't no longer have to build a file server, I'm just literally downloading an ISO and you know installing a piece of software. That becomes a very attractive feature. And then all of the upgrades and stuff, that's all going to be automated. And let me tell you, as a person who had a hard drive fail in his file server, and I you know, I freaked out and I was talking to Alan. I'm like, oh, what do I do? Just calm down, put a new drive in and click the button. So there's a button to click? Yeah, there's a button to click. Just put the drive in and click the button. So I pull the old drive out, put the new drive in, and I click the button. And as soon as I click the button, it says, hey, we detected a new drive. You've removed this serial number hard drive, and you've replaced it with this. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. And it goes back and resilvered all my data. And uh, within, I don't know, maybe six, seven hours, I was back in business. And man, alive. To be able to do that, you, you really start to see the power of that. You say, wow, if, if, if anything ever fails, I ever have a hard drive failure. And these were brand new drives. And a lot of people say, well, I, you know, I bought brand new drives. And I did all the things that, you know, all the little, you know, incantations you're supposed to do. I, I bought my drives six months apart. I bought one. Then I bought another one six months later. Then I bought another one. So they were from different batches and stuff like that. And I tried. I really did. But I did not get anywhere. All right. So let's dive into this. Tales.boom.org. Headline, Tales 3.0 is out. We are especially proud to present Tales 3.0, the first version of the Tales based on Debian 9. It brings completely new startup shutdown experience, a lot of polishing to the desktop, security improvements, adept and, uh, and, and major upgrades to a lot of the software included. Debian 9 will be released on June 17th, and is the, it's the first time that we are releasing a new version of Tales almost at the same time as the version of Debian it is based upon. And this was an important objective to us because it's beneficial to both our users and the users of Debian in general, and it strengthens our relationship with Upstream. Now, if you haven't heard of Tails, we're going to dive into it this week. And if you have heard, or even maybe you use on a regular basis Tails, stick with me because we're going to get a little deep on this, and I think you might find it interesting. First of all, Tails is not a desktop distribution. Tails is not designed to be your primary desktop. In fact, and we're going to get into this a little bit later in the show, many of the features of Tails, in fact, assume that it is running off of some form of removable media. And so if you are looking to get started with Linux or maybe you have already gotten started with Linux and you're on a distro. And we've all been there. We download Ubuntu, we download Fedora, whatever it is. We get the distro installed. We get comfortable with it. And then we start seeing other people using different distros. Well, we have the what we call distro hopping syndrome. We, we decide we have to try them all. This is not what you want to do with Tails. It is not what it's designed for. 
if you're looking to get started with Linux, uh, you might consider using Tails. It's a, it's a very useful distro to anyone that cares about their privacy, but it is not meant to replace your desktop distro. And I just want to make that clear right off the bat. All right, I we are uh, phones are filling up this hour, so I don't want to leave these uh, I don't want to leave these guys hanging. We're going to go to Eric in Missouri. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I don't know how you doing. Excellent. How can we help today? Um, I bought a Lenovo Yoga Nine Ten just a few weeks ago. It's a uh, it's an ultrabook, so touchscreen tablet laptop, uh, and uh, I installed. Pure Arch, and uh, I've had great success getting everything running. But there's one, <laughs> there's one really annoying uh, feature, if you will, on the Lenovo. By default, the uh, F1 through F12 keys act as media keys. Uh, to get it to hit F12, for instance, for GWAKE, I have to hold down the function key in F12. And as a user who is very dependent upon keyboard shortcuts. Uh, you might imagine this is really frustrating. Um, so the issue I'm having is that it used to be in the BIOS that you could flip that functionality back to normal. It's no longer in the BIOS, and from what I can tell, there's no way under Linux to do that easily. Um, an easy solution would be to dual boot with uh, Windows 10, but that's that would take up a lot of a, a lot of disk space with a 256 gig drive. So what I'm looking to do is use uh, XMOD map to remap my keys. Um, unfortunately, I'm having some issues trying to figure that out. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you have above your escape key, does it say function lock? I'll tell you where I'm going with this. A lot of the new Lenovo's, and my ThinkPad has this as well, they, uh, I, I, it could be in the BIOS as well. I have not looked. But my understanding is that um, they have removed a lot of the, the, the function toggle from the BIOS, but they have re-implemented a similar feature by holding you – instead of pressing function and then pressing the, the F key that you want to activate, you hold function and there might be a key on there that says function lock. And then you're able to lock the function key so it, 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 it inverts those function keys from media buttons back to the function keys, which, by the way, if anyone cares, uh, that's what they should be to begin with. You shouldn't have to be fighting this issue. I don't – I mean it's idiotic, right? Like for the last 20 years, we've had these buttons that, that – and every application in the world has assigned refresh functions and you know, in video editing, holy crap, we use them for all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, someday – some a bunch of companies decided, oh, well, we're we're going to go make media keys out of this, and then to add insult to injury, not only are we going to make media buttons out of this, they're not going to be standard. They're going to be whatever we decide. So on some computers, F five is volume up, and on other computers, F nine is volume up, and it just it's all kitty wonker. It drives me nuts. But um, do you see a function lock on there at all? Uh, there isn't a function lock on the nine ten. There isn't. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. I I guess you're right. I guess the answer is uh, is your uh, is your is your key map. I'll tell you what. I don't have an answer uh, for you off the top of my head of how to how to map those those keys. But um, I will put this out. If anyone in the chat room has an idea, or anyone out there listening has an idea of how he can map those those function keys, would you go ahead and get contact with us? Asknoahshow.com and use the contact form and let us know, and uh, we will get that information to Eric. And Eric, I think I have you on Telegram, so I will, uh, I will, uh, I'll take a look at that. Ben is calling from Pennsylvania. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for the great job you're doing in the podcast. And, um, Thank you, sir. I was listening to, I think it was two episodes ago, you were talking about uh, GNOME Linux. And I recently switched my laptop over to Ubuntu GNOME, and I'm trying to install Teamier. Now, I downloaded the dev file, and I open it in the software manager. And when I go to hit install, it'll say installing 9%, and then it'll just quit. And it's it's not prompting for a password or anything, so I'm not sure if I'm doing something wrong or what the problem is. Yeah, I've honestly I have had increasingly I have had increasing issues with TeamViewer. Which version specifically are you using? I'm sorry if you told me. I missed it. Uh 
Okay. You're on 11. You know, uh, what version of Ubuntu are you on? Are you on the LTS? Uh, I think I'm on 16.04. Yeah, okay. You're on the LTS. So what I would suggest doing is trying TeamViewer 10 and seeing if that works. I also So full disclaimer, I also had issues with TeamViewer 10, different issues than TeamViewer 11. But, um, but uh, TeamViewer 10 seems to have smoothed out quite a bit. I would go back and try TeamViewer 10 and see if that works for you. Here's the downside in doing that. The way that TeamViewer works, it requires that the remote connecting computer have an equal or greater version than the computer that you're connecting to. So if you have family and friends that have downloaded um, regular that have downloaded team, they just go to the TeamViewer site, they click on the big download link, they're going to wind up with TeamViewer 11 and you're not going to be able to connect to them. Do you have control over the computers that are installing the remote side software? Well, the problem is uh, we're a small business and we have about uh, 30 or 40 PCs that we log into regularly and we have all of those running on TeamViewer 11 because that's the license yeah. that we have. Okay, gotcha. Got Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're... Oof. Oh, yeah, that is a pain. And I'll t- yeah, I, so I don't have an answer. F- I don't really have an answer for you. I, well, yeah, I do have an answer for you. If you have uh, TeamViewer, I would con. If you have a the, uh, the if you have paid uh, version of TeamViewer, I would just contact support and I would have them fix it for you because you're using a supported operating system, uh, and um, and I would think they would be able to to work through that. But I have had issues with TeamViewer 11. The good news is my guess is within a couple of weeks the problem is just going to go away because that's what happened with TeamViewer 10 when we had problems. One of the issues I have with TeamViewer is once a given version of TeamViewer is out, like I said, you almost have to start using it or you slowly become unable to assist other people. So let's just say in Ben's example that he has his entire company is using TeamViewer 11. The issue is even if they decide they're just going to stick on TeamViewer 11 because they don't want to, you know, the increased cost of paying to continually upgrade the, the license, the problem with doing that is the library files inside of Linux quickly become out of out of date they become incompatible with the newest version of TeamViewer. So for example, I am unable to go back more than a version or two on TeamViewer on for example 1604 and all of those combined with um TeamViewer's um licensing model just kind of the way they they approach it I have just kind of given up on TeamViewer altogether, and I've actually switched to something called Simple Help. And Simple Help is available simplehelp.com. It is a it is a fantastic uh, managed service remote desktop infrastructure. And, I, and I, when I originally set it up, I thought I was just setting it up to deal with remote desktop and and log in remotely and stuff like that. It does so much more. It does statistics. It does analytics of the computers. It allows you to. It has a security model built in that you can allow access to certain machines, disallow access to certain machines. Um, you can perform, a, you can kick off, uh, you know, toolkits and upgrades and, and run scripts all behind the, all behind the scenes. So you're not interrupting the user. I mean, it's a fantastic suite. I really recommend everyone take a look at it. Also from Pennsylvania, James is calling. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Thanks for taking my call. How can we help today? Um, I was thinking about this in the last couple of weeks, and I was, and I just wondered if you thought this was feasible. Um, are there any distros that um, say they have a like a a new or a major release coming? Um, would they ever do anything like where, say, there's three different options? They they can't you know they can't do all three of those, but maybe they they would place a dollar value on a certain feature or let it be bid up. So like, I, I can't even think of an example, but um, where people would donate to a specific feature as a way of, you know, as a way of, um, as a way of financing the distro and also giving features that the, that the users would want. Sure. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so what you're describing is what's known as a bounty process. And it is a very well-established model in the open source community, one that I don't think it's talked about enough. So I, you know, I'm really thankful you brought this up, James. Basically, what the bounty model does is users request given features and they say, I want X or I need Y. And then they assign a bounty to that feature. So they say, 
if a developer is out there that is willing to do this because it would help my small business or would solve X case for me, I am willing to pay why? And then any developer can come along and look at all of these bounties and say, oh, the guys want to pay 500 bucks to do that? I could do that. And then he sits down and writes, writes the code. Now, you're talking about a slightly different, in, it, it, uh, slightly different implementation of this because, you know, if I understand the way that you're describing it, we're saying the distro themselves would say, here are the features that we're, we are, here are all the features that we're willing to do. Who would pay for these things? And then people could go in and say, yeah, I want, um, you know, for example, you know, right now there is an issue with the, there, there's an issue with the, the GNOME desktop, uh, you know, uh, crashing, so to speak. So somebody could go in there and say, if somebody fixes that, it would be worth this. And that would go right to the distro themselves. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, basically that's that type of thing where you could even have almost kind of like an auction, but I guess it wouldn't be live, where you could have individual users even. You know, you're willing to donate $20 towards that feature, and you get enough users that it, you know, it, it kind of pushes that feature or that fix into first place. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think that... Um I, 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 it, it, it is definitely something that exists. It is definitely something that I, I personally think is, is underused. And I'll, I'll, I'll exemplify that a little bit. When we were first starting to use OBS, one of the things that we noticed right off the bat were there were some key features that were missing that we needed to, to put it into production. And so we looked at it and we said, okay, well, this is what it would cost to upgrade to the next version of the proprietary junk we were using. And so what if we took even half of that uh, and we are willing to contribute it to a developer. And so I, uh, on my own, by the way, I, I, this, I'm, this is not the, uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the network or anything like that. But so I, on my own, approached uh, some developers and I said, here are the things that we need to have changed. And I said, here is what I'm willing to pay and can we get this done? Um, and so I tried unsuccessfully, I might add, because they, they didn't want to commit the changes. The OBS team didn't. Um, and so it, it, it didn't end up working out, but the, the concept was there, right? Like we had a need. We, I, I was willing to fund that need because I wanted to see the software succeed and I wanted it to be able to use, use it in this particular use case. Um, and so the, the, the model is definitely a model that, that can succeed, that would succeed. And I actually, at this very moment, have a personal list of, of features I would love to see implemented in the software OS ticket, which is what we use to manage ultra speed technologies and we would absolutely pay money to have a developer come in and and fix these things the the issue that i keep running into though when i've tried to attack this model is it seems like time and time again developers want to make a fork or just make a modification to the 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 you know my instance and that doesn't work for me for a number of reasons one is i just simply don't want the overhead of maintaining a ticket software i wrote our original ticket software from scratch myself the reason we switched to os ticket was because i was sick of maintaining it um so i don't want the overhead of maintaining uh, you know a fork of, of of software but the second thing is is that it it goes against the very nature of open source I am using a world-renowned ticketing system because a bunch of other people gave of their time and will and talent to write you know, a world-class system, and now I'm taking advantage of that to implement or to better that software and not give that backup stream to the people that allowed me to take what they had to begin with. It fundamentally goes against – it's the antithesis of me, so you know, I'm not comfortable with it. But uh, all that to say, yes, I think it's a great model. Yes, it can work. Yes, I think it is underrated. And yes, I would like to see more of that happening. Okay, so I want to go back to what Tails is. Talked about what Tails isn't, not a desktop operating system. So what is Tails? Tails is, well, what does the word Tails mean? It's an acronym that stands for the Amnesic Incognito Live System. T-A-I-L-S, Tails. It originally started out as a project called Incognito based on Gentoo back in 2008. And shortly thereafter, it was rebranded as Tails in 2009. Now, Edward Snowden is probably could be credited as really bringing Tails out into the sunlight because after he came out having leaked numerous classified documents, which he smuggled from the U.S. government and then later revealed, he... Uh, he later said that he ha- was using the software Tails, and that was the tool that he was using to secretly store, access, and communicate these documents to reporters. Now, the key for Tails 
In other words, the, the verification key that you have downloaded authentic software, the key for Tails is signed by the Debian development team. So if you trust Debian, then by extension, it could be argued that you should also trust Tails. So I said that Tails was not a distro to be used as a daily driver. So when would you use Tails? Well, I personally use Tails anytime I want to perform an activity on my computer that I don't want a record of. And before anyone says it, before you're even thinking it, no, that does not mean said activity is illegal. It does not mean that said activity is immoral. There are plenty of legal, moral, legitimate reasons why somebody simply wants to privately work on their computer. And I'm not going to get into those various reasons because, frankly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your reasons are. The tool is available to use, and the more that privacy-conscious people use these tools out in the open, unapologetically, the more mainstream and the more accepted they will become. And we just might reach a point someday in the distant future where nobody asks why you encrypt your hard drive. Nobody asks why you have a fingerprint lock on your phone. Nobody asks why you're using a highly secured Linux distribution on a flash drive because you want to work in private. Because privacy becomes the norm. That's, that's a pipe dream. I don't think that's actually ever going to happen, but it sounded good. So what is it? It's an operating system that runs entirely in RAM. And I'm going to back up and be a little simplistic here for just a moment for anyone that is new to Linux or computers in general. Imagine for a moment that you go into work at your office and you have a desk. And under your desk, you have a file cabinet. Now, when you are at work and you're working, you may pull files out of your file cabinet and you put them on your desk. And you work on them on your desk. Now imagine also that when you leave for the night and you turn off your light to your office, your cleaning aid comes in. And it is understood that everything that is on your desk is not saved, is not worth keeping. And so she throws everything on your desk away and then wipes the surface down. Your computer's memory, or RAM, is a lot like the surface of your desk. The file cabinet, in this analogy, is a lot like your hard drive. Anything that is on your desk, anything that is in RAM, is essentially lost anytime the computer loses power, anytime you walk out of the office and shut the lights off, anytime you shut the computer down, anytime you restart it. It's what we call non. It's it's what we call volatile memory. It 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 is not saved. It's not persistent. Anything that is saved to the hard drive, or in our analogy, anything that's put inside of the file cabinet, is then persistent. So anything done on the disk, you know, is is permanent. But here's the issue. The issue is that, and you start to get into this when you start looking at forensic data recovery. Anything that is done on the disk leaves trace evidence. Every file that you touch, every file you click on, it leaves certain fingerprints. It logs who accessed the file, when they accessed the file, how the file was accessed, was it clicked on, was it accessed from a CLI, was it double-clicked on? Every change you make to the file, all of these activities can be recovered using some special forensic analysis techniques. Now, Tails takes advantage of all of this because by default, it doesn't store anything to the hard drive. And it only runs, the, the entire operating system runs inside of memory. It runs on the desk. So essentially, you don't leave any trace of your activity. It doesn't stop there. Tails does a number of really cool things that ensures that your Tails sessions are secure. By Tails sessions, I mean I boot into Tails, I use it. That would be a session. By default, it's going to route all of your traffic through what's known as Tor. Now, if you don't know what Tor is, perhaps that will be a topic for a later episode. But suffice to say today that it's a very secure, anonymous network that allows you to browse the Internet securely without being tracked uh, through typical means. There are a number of factors that go into how secure Tor actually is. And there's going to be a bunch of crypto heads out there that are like, well, you don't understand that it's dependent on the Tor exit. No, yeah, I know, I know. But for the purpose of today's program, suffice to say, it's a lot better than anything you're using at your house. So all of the traffic goes through Tor, and it's not just through 
the secure browser. Tails, by default, will literally block any piece of software that attempts to access the Internet, and it does this using IP tables. Now, there are some exceptions you can explicitly make, um, but by default, everything is blocked. Now, anytime the computer is shut down or restarted, the RAM is actually wiped. And we said earlier in our analogy that anytime power was lost to the computer or shut down, the data was gone. And that's true from a data recovery standpoint. So, for example, if you called AltaSpeed Customer Care at 1-866-280-1433 and you asked them, hey, I had some pictures open and saved them, but they were open at the time that the computer shut off, do you guys think you could recover that? We would tell you, no, we cannot recover them. You've lost those pictures. The truth is, though, if there is a good enough reason, there are almost always ways to recover data like that. And this is what's known as a cold boot attack, which in its most simplistic form is you take a very cold temperatured um, substance and you apply it to the memory chips on the RAM. And you can actually preserve the information long enough to put them into a special machine called a memory scraper that can extract the contents of the memory. Now, this goes beyond just files you had open, because a lot of people, when I say that, they go, okay, well, I'll just make sure to always close files when I'm not using them. This is problem solved, right? No. Certain things are stored in memory that you don't always aren't consciously aware of. So, for example, your encryption keys. If you have a hard disk and you have decrypted it, the keys to read that data are being stored in memory. And of course, if we can get access to those encryption keys, we can get access to the hard drive. If we can get access to your hard drive, then all bets are off. So Tails does some really fancy things behind the scenes to make sure that this isn't likely. It's not impossible, but unlikely. Anytime you shut down or restart the computer, Tails actually kicks off a series of scripts that take advantage of a feature in the Linux kernel called the Freed Memory Poisoning feature. And essentially, when you shut the computer down, it kicks off a microkernel and that, att- that essentially right- wipes the RAM using that built-in feature. So, okay, that all sounds great, Noah, but what happens when I'm using Tails and my boss comes up behind me and I just rip the uh, USB stick out of the, out of the drive because it's instinctive. I just I don't want to get caught using this uh, you know, hacker distro thing. Well, I'm glad you asked. Basically, inside of Tails, as soon as Tails starts up, there is a wrapper. And the wrapper, inside of it, there is a process running. And it's a custom, implement, a custom implementation of the UDEV watchdog that monitors the flash drive that you use to boot the system. And when I say flash drive, I mean any media you use to boot the system because it could be a CD, it could be a flash drive, it could be an SSD, whatever. If you disconnect the drive that was used to boot the, the, the machine, this process notices that that happened and it will automatically, and the word that they use is brutally, begin the erasure process by bypassing all of the other shutdown scripts. So it immediately goes to, oh crap, this guy just disconnected my boot media, the thing that used to get into me. Something is very wrong here. Erase everything. Do it now. The TLDR here is really smart people have gone to ridiculous lengths to ensure that your computing environment inside of Tails will remain secure. That's not a guarantee because where there's a will, there's a way. But it's very, very secure. It's a very secure environment to get work done. And, and this is an important one. It has a proven track record of thwarting highly motivated organizations, including government organizations, at trying to break its security. Now, there are a couple of other things that Tails is doing, like MAC address spoofing. So, like, for example, at AltaSpeed, we, I know the MAC address Uh, the hardware MAC address of the wired connection and the wireless connection of every employee that we have. And the reason I have that is because we use something called Mac stickies on a lot of our switches so that there are certain, so that you cannot walk into AltaSpeed and sit down in our conference room and plug your laptop in. It won't work. Um, But our technicians can, and and, then it's not a completely, you know, secure thing because obviously, you know, we can spoof Mac addresses, but uh, suffice to say that if somebody took their, if an employee took their laptop and tried to use tails, on our network, I would be able to see that their computer is the one that is accessing Tails, and I can go back through and I can reference that MAC address and go, oh, that, that's that person. I know who that is, and then I can go talk to him, right? Well, Tails actually spoofs, it generates a new hardware address, so even that won't work. 
which is really cool. Um, so they're going to be even, even if you know what you're looking for, even if you know the hardware you're looking for, you're going to have a hard time finding it. Once you're inside of Tails, it comes with a pretty exhaustive list of software for you to use. Uh, web browser, which is most mostly what I'm using. A Bitcoin client, which also I use in Tails. Uh, a mail client with GPG, so you can send and receive encrypted email. A chat client. A password manager, which I also use inside of Tails. A office suite, so a word processor and spreadsheet and, uh, you know, presentation software. I don't know why you'd need to do that in a scary environment, but hey, like I said, doesn't matter your reasons. Uh, image editing software, audio editing software, all of this is included right in the Tails distro. So it's it's kind of like your one-stop shop for uh, for software. They've introduced uh, a new startup and shutdown, uh, Greeter in 3.0, and this is the application that configures Tails when it first starts up. So you plug the USB drive in, you boot off of it, and the very first thing it does is it asks you a series of questions. Um, they have redesigned that to be easier to use. All of the options are now available from a single window. Version 3.0 is more friendly towards our international friends. All of the language and region settings have been redesigned to make those easy to manipulate. Accessibility features are now functional right from the start. And a small but important feature, they have redesigned the shutdown screen. So... Now, instead of, it used to show you everything that was happening when the computer sh- shut off. The problem with that is a lot of data output, if you're walking by and, you know, you're the, you're the boss or you're the whoever, you're walking by and you go Windows 10, Windows 10, Windows 10, lots of text scrolling. What, what, what is he doing? So they have taken, they've gotten rid of that and they've gone to just a black screen. So as the, as the Tails program is wiping your memory, it doesn't show anything. Um, which makes it far less suspicious. So that's really cool. Uh, some really, really cool progress from the folks at Tails. And a huge thank you to, for, to them for providing such a very important tool. I think it's, I think it's really cool. And it's definitely a tool that is in – th- there's a, a small pouch. And I've referenced this before on the show. It sits in my backpack. And this pouch contains flash drives of some of the most important tools that I take with me everywhere. If I fly, the pouch goes into my computer bag, comes with me. Um, it's here with me right now. It never leaves my side. One of those drives is a Tails drive. Um, and so I'm really happy to see that that project is moving forward. They are doing tremendous things for people that care about their privacy and security. Jay is calling from Pennsylvania. Hi, Jay. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Oh, sorry, Jay. I forgot to get the button. I had to hit the button. Hi, Jay. Oh yeah, um, hello. Um, I remember. Um, so I'm calling again for uh, that that problem I had with the BIOS of the SATA SATA ports connecting hard drives to both the SATA uh, RAID card as well as on yes. the board. Yes, yes, uh, yes. How'd that go? So, so uh, it did. So, um, so I looked on the um, on the Dell website and uh, it didn't have a BIOS update in two years. And of the fixes that I saw, nothing pertained to anything like like a raid card compatibility or any uh any pcie updates or anything Man, of the sort. okay and the, uh, refresh my memory uh, this is an optiplex 750 seven uh, uh optiplex 700 730 i think 730 yeah. okay All right, i was close seven something yeah yeah okay Man, okay, so that so the BIOS update didn't work, and so you're having problems with it. So to, to refresh everyone's memory, um, Jay is trying to build a machine here, uh, basically a small file server, and what he wants to do is boot the operating system off of a SATA drive, and then have a series of drives connected to a PCI uh, card that is that that uh, PCI RAID card that's connected then to a series of drives. And the issue that he's having is, and he called in a couple weeks ago, and we 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 uh, we made a couple of suggestions to him. The issue he's having a couple weeks ago was when he goes to boot the machine up. If he connects the the RAID card, the machine doesn't uh, it, it will post, and then it just stops. It, the machine won't boot, and he can't get into any of the BIOS features. He has to completely disconnect the hardware. So a couple of weeks ago, we recommended that he try upgrading the BIOS. And I think I gave, didn't I give you something like a 90% certainty that that would fix your problem? Yeah, yeah, but, but that's not, um, that's not good. I didn't really expect, I didn't, I didn't expect much from it because it's a desktop system. It's not like an enterprise system that, you know, that requires, um, that, that might require updates like that. Um, so I didn't expect too much from it, but I also expected it to just work, you know, because, you know, it's consumer hardware. I'm not using any, any kind of like, Super micro card. I'm just yeah. using a an uh, off the shelf card. 
Yeah, but there's no. I mean, the reality is that the difference between you know enterprise gear and, and consumer gear is not there. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are differences in chipsets and stuff like that. But the reality is, I mean, they're Intel boards. Uh, so there's, I, I really, and the other thing is too is I have done very similar things to what you're doing. In fact, just a couple of weeks before you had called and asked the question, I granted I didn't do it with the 730 or whatever. I did it with the Optiplex 390, but it's the same thing. I put a RAID card in there because we had it laying around, stuck some drives in there. It worked just fine. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I really don't know what to tell you. I guess if, if you can't update the BIOS, your choices are to either try a different uh, a, a different computer or try a different RAID card. The other thing is, how many SATA ports do you have on that machine? Um. Well, um, on on the card I have four, and I believe on the motherboard I have six. No, four, uh, four, four things. So yeah. you, um, yeah. So and and the thing is that I is that I have a kind of um, MacGyver setup where I where I have where I have long long SATA cables, and they route them outside the case into a custom uh, custom uh, case that I built for the yeah. uh, for the uh, drives with actually a fan. Uh, sure. So you're. So I think you might be recommending to put all the drives on the motherboard itself. That's one thing you could do. What If it were my machine, here's what I would do. I would purchase – here's the problem. The problem is I don't know exactly how the how, – you know, how those – how the SATA buses are set up and stuff like that. But if it was my machine, here's what I might do. I might buy a, a PCIe to SATA card and just, that just has four regular SATA ports on it. I'd plug a hmm. SSD or something like that into one of the SATA ports right on the motherboard. And then I would plug your your drive array into the, you know a SATA a SATA card that SATA PCI card that sits inside of the computer, and then I would install something like FreeNAS. And the reality is that these days in 2017, I work with a lot of big clients, Jay. I mean, the, and people that have budgets that far exceed anything that you or I could afford, right? Um, and 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 these organizations, like even today. Uh, when we're putting in huge file s- servers, you know that are that have massively important data on them, we're not using RAID cards. Um, it's all ZFS, uh, and and to that end, I've never had an issue putting uh, ZFS in. Every time we've ever had what even approaches a failure, um, it's been you know super simple to to recover from it. Um, so I'm a real believer, and just like I told the the first caller, the second caller today. Um, you know, I'm I'm all in on ZFS, so that would be my suggestion to you: is, is give that a shot. You could you could just plug them all into the board. I'm concerned that you're going to run out of an you know an actual amount of of SATA ports on the board. You don't want to do odd number of drives. You want to stick to two or four. Um, and so, if you have, only have four ports on the on the motherboard, you wouldn't want to do a boot drive one and then three hard drives. Um, so, in that case, I would just uh, I would eBay the 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 SCSI card or the, um, sorry, RAID card. And I would, uh, purchase just a, a, a SATA PCI card. And if you don't want to do that, then what I would do is I would, uh, I would plug just two storage drives. I buy the biggest drives I could afford and plug those right into the motherboard. And then a third drive, something like an SSD into the, the, into the motherboard for booting. And I'll tell you for SSDs, especially if it's the file server, a file server that I, you know, I needed to access and it was needed to stay up. I wouldn't use anything else other than a Samsung 850 Pro. Um, for a file server, you can get away with just the 128 gig little version. You can buy them for 40, 50 bucks. Uh, but right. uh, but the they have a lot of the same um, wear testing and reliability that the Intel enterprise grade SSDs that cost like $700 have. Um, the, the, the flip side of that is it's not very hard to recover from an SSD failure as long as it's just the operating system in FreeNAS. You can literally um, download another copy of FreeNAS, install it to a new drive, plug it in, and just cl- click import array, and it will import all of your your, your data structure back uh, into the FreeNAS. And if you back up your configs, you won't even have to, to worry about that. So it's, it's not that it's terribly hard to recover. It's just a pain. And I have a 850 Pro. That okay. I had a, uh, can I interrupt for a second? Sure. Um, so, so um, a little bit more um, about my config that I thought was just hardware, so it doesn't matter. Um, is that I'm actually running uh, FreeBSD. I mean, sorry, uh, yeah, FreeBSD. I decided to get into open, in, into FreeBSD actually because uh, actually because of uh, Dan uh, Dan Langle from TechSnap. Uh, sure. I uh, love God love TechSnap. Um, so I, I decided to try out FreeBSD and you know go the whole uh, ZFS route. So I'm actually running ZFS on these machines. So uh, you're on this, uh, so the transition and running. Uh, the transition yeah, yeah. to to FreeNAS is um, going to be. I was actually running Butter ButterFS before before oh, I was running ButterFS. Oh, I didn't geez. quite. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, it was good. You didn't get you didn't get bit, did but you? I'm gonna try it. Nah, 
Okay. Yeah. Well, here's, uh, I mean, here's I the thing. It, it's, yeah. here's, here's the thing, Jay. It's irrelevant what operating system you're running because at the point that you're running into a failure, it hasn't uploaded the operating system yet. So the operating system is irrelevant. You could, from what I'm understanding, you could uh, put in a blank hard drive and you would still run into the same issue, right? Yes, yes. That's, yeah. that's what I believe. Yeah. So, but um, I mean, but it, it, bo- um, there's other strange issue that I was running into. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with the, with the uh, hard drive, uh, it, it, um, I've tried this like twice, like like a two or three times rebooting. It takes three reboots uh, to for it to detect the ZFS root drive on on VSD because I have put ZFS as a root um, that's, um, as my root file system. So it takes exactly three to uh, boot into the uh, FreeBSD loading screen. So I'm not a big. And I don't know why. I don't know either, and I'm and I'm not. I'll tell you off the bat, I'm not a big fan of ZFS on root. We actually we did that uh, for our broadcast machine. Now, granted, this was a early, early, early days of ZFS on Linux, and we put ZFS on root. And um, every time we did a kernel upgrade, it was a just a nightmare. Um, you probably have a better time with that on BSD, um, but it, it, you know, really, if you think about it, a lot of the advantage. I mean, again. It's not that hard to rebuild the base operating system as long as your data is there. It's basically just the base operating system, I would assume, is a base operating system that is facilitating the shares out to other computers, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that, that would be my suggestion. I would suggest probably not, uh, not ZFS on root because you don't, need the, you don't need the rollback functions. You don't need the expandability you know, on, on your root partition that, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems like an unnecessary headache and, uh, um, I just, I wouldn't do it. But then again, if it were me, I guess I would use an appliance based solution too. I wouldn't, I wouldn't reinvent the wheel. Uh, all that to say though, uh, you have a hardware issue, um, aside operating system aside, software decision aside, file system aside, you have a hardware issue. And the way I would solve that is, uh, by swapping your, uh, your raid card for a, SATA card. All right. Sweet Lou is calling. Can't do a show without Sweet Lou. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How's it going tonight? Pretty good. How can we help? Um, Tails versus Cubes, OS versus Unix. Which would be better for somebody like, say, an Edward Snowden or a reality winner <laughs> to use and why? Well, I mean, I can, I mean, I can answer that pretty definitively. Uh, I would have to say Tails, and I would say Tails because if you're asking what Edward Snowden would do in an Edward Snowden situation, we know he used Tails. Um, and it has a track record. Uh, that's my big thing is when Hunix or when Cubes, and if there's somebody, if there's a evidence out there that I just haven't seen, by all means, send it in. Head over to the Ask Noah Show dashboard, com. Let me know about it. But to the best of my knowledge, Tails has the, has the, the most uh, prolific track record um, for thwarting people trying to get a hold of private computing sessions. And um, that means a lot to me. Engadget, headline, EU proposes banning encryption backdoors. The European Union might want it to be easier for police to obtain data, but that doesn't mean that it'll be easier for officers to read that data. The European Parliament has proposed an amended regulation that would not only require end-to-end encryption when available, but forbid backdoors that offer guaranteed access to law enforcement. EU residents need to know that the confidentiality and safety of their data is guaranteed, according to the draft, and backdoors risk weakening that privacy. The proposal is yet to be approved by Parliament, and then it must be reviewed by the EU Council, so there's still a chance that the rules will be softened if and when it, the amendment passes. But, to be clear... They could just set up a contract between the EU and countries that aren't so fond of encryption. The UK is undoubtedly the main concern, even after it left the EU. A ban on backdoors would make it difficult for the country to enforce the Investigatory Powers, uh, Investigatory Powers Act requirement that companies must remove electronic protection when possible. How would that be meaningful when virtually every tech company in Europe is encrypting data traffic and you're not likely to see UK-specific versions of apps that introduce security holes? This would also thwart the efforts of some American politicians, such as Senators Richard Burr and Dianne Feinstein, to effectively ban airtight encryption. So here's the thing. The Fourth Amendment does not – it is not a shroud for illegal activity. 
and I am not defending people who use encryption to break the law. But the reality here is, just like torrents earned a bad reputation for you know downloading movies and TV shows, there is a very techno they are a very technologically superior way to move a large data set from one place to the other. And it's how I download literally every single distro image. It should be how Microsoft distributes Windows 10 instead of waiting seven hours for it to you know, transfer in an HTTP web, web session. It's ridiculous. This is why open source is so important when it comes to privacy, security, and encryption. Because let's say some of these governments do in fact make it possible to weaken this encryption in software that we use daily. Let's say we get to a point where they are now looking to introduce backdoors. And we'll start with, who exactly are you going to convince? If you, you know, and we have a link in the show notes. I didn't bother to to read it here on the air because it's kind of a he said, she said thing. But apparently the Telegram folks claim that they have been approached by U.S. government and intelligent officials who have asked them to intentionally weaken the security so that they can compromise uh, encrypted message sent over Telegram. And let's assume for a moment that the Telegram piece is accurate. Well, good luck convincing a group of people who coordinate openly to go along with intentionally introducing vulnerabilities aside, uh, you know, and aside from that, aside from that piece, aside from the Telegram piece, if we are talking about true open source technologies, then, and the code is, let's say, available on GitHub, good luck getting somebody to commit a change on GitHub that weakens encryption intentionally and better luck yet of not having anyone else notice that somebody has committed a code change to intentionally weaken security. When it comes to security, I simply do not understand how people can take the approach, trust us, it's secure. I don't understand it It, because literally what you're saying, what, what you're talking about when it comes to proprietary software is There are two methods, there are two models that you can develop security around. The first is the traditional proprietary security model, which is we keep everything highly secret out of the public eye. Everything happens in, you know, underground bunkers that nobody knows about. And in that way, even if there was a potential security hole, nobody would know about it because it's, you know, it's buried in our underground bunker. The other way to do it And the way that I am a proponent of is the guys across the street, they build a huge house across from the underground bunker. And they say, hey, come, come, come over. Come on over for a party. We're having beer on the front lawn and try and break down our door. We dare you. In fact, we'll pay you to try to break down our door because we think we have built a house so secure that you will not be able to break into it. But even if we're wrong in the highly unlikely event that we're wrong, then that just gives us an opportunity to fix said vulnerability before it's used against one of our users. Now, which one is more secure? You tell me. Again, one 450 noaa That's one 450 OMG Ubuntu, headline, Steam is now available as a flat pack, and here's how to install it on Ubuntu. The Steam flat pack is even being distributed through a flat hub, a centralized repository for app developers to host their apps in. My expectation is that flat hub will become the de facto app storefront for flat packs. As noted by Alexander Willems in an, in a going in an ongoing thread on the steam for Linux GitHub issue tracker, steam is available to install as a flat pack via the flat hub repo. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want to check this out, but this is really, really cool guys, because what you are seeing is major applications coming to things like Flatback, coming to things like App Image, coming to things like Snaps. And I've said this before in the program. The very first time I ever used it was App Image. It was Etcher.io. That was the first program. The first time I ever used Etcher.io, I sat down on my computer. It was a it was a Ubuntu machine, Ubuntu laptop. And I went to download, and the, I, I did what everyone does when you go to install Ubuntu software. I started Googling etcher.io PPA. Couldn't find anything. I go into the repo, and I try and install it. You know, the, you know uh, pseudo app, get install etcher. Doesn't work. Okay, so how do I do this? So finally, I just go to etcher.io, and it says download. 
It is not that simple on Linux. You can't just download this piece of software. You have to know what distro I'm running. I have to get the dev. I have to get the RPM. I have to whatever, right? Source code. I have to compile it. No. Download the stupid thing. Double click on it and it runs. Okay, great. That's cool. I could kind of see that working on Ubuntu. It is the most targeted distro for software. But then I got home and I was running Arch at the time. I actually still am on my desktop. I go downstairs, go to the same etcher.io website, download software the same way I would on a Windows PC or a Mac, double click on it, etcher.io runs. And it hit me. This is what we have, what we need on Linux. And this is what we have needed on Linux for the last 10 years. And I have had very in-depth discussions with people way smarter than me that can explain six ways to Sunday why universal installers are a bad idea and why we shouldn't have them and how it takes away the autonomy of individual distros. And I mean, you name it, there's a reason for it. And I don't care. I, the, this is ultimately what is going to propel Linux forward. One of the many things we are centralized on the GNOME desktop. We have not one, but two major Linux companies that are contributing to that particular desktop environment and basing their distros on that desktop environment. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people like Ike Doherty that are coming up, that are inventing from the ground up desktop Linux distros, not server distros, not uh, utility distros, not, not VPS distros, not specialized distros to run inside of your car or home theater or something like that. Desktop Linux um, with things like the Solus Project, and he's working full-time because he believes in that so much. All of those forces together tell me, you know, and combine that then with this universal installers, all of those forces together tell me that we are moving rapidly in a direction where there is going to be more Linux adoption. And we see that coming to fruition with companies like Dell that are that have an entire lineup now of very expensive Linux computers. And I was just having a conversation with a, with a, a high school friend of mine, um, and he was talking about, you know, which computer he was going to buy. He went and looked at all of Dell's lineup. You know what he landed on? And this is a guy who doesn't have any allegiance to Linux. He doesn't care uh, what operating system he's using. Um, he has, you know, some, he, 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 he's a photographer, and so he takes some photos, and he needs to be able to upload those photos and do some editing on those photos. Uh, and I asked him, I said, you know, are you, do you need access to the creative suite? And he said, no, first of all, I don't edit uh, photos on my laptop. So no. Um, And so he starts looking at it and he landed on his own on the uh, on the XPS, on the developer's edition, because it's a great piece of hardware and it has very reliable software that works very well. um, And it's available with support right from Dell. And I don't think Dell would be hedging that kind of bet on a operating system if they didn't believe that there was a that there was a high to a very high likelihood that that is where the money is going to be in the future. And if you look at the direction that Microsoft is taking windows, I'd say that's a pretty fair assessment. I have yet to, I I, I, mean, I work in this industry and I have yet to meet a client that is happy about windows 10. There are people that are less that complain less about uh, windows 10 than they did about windows eight. There are people that complain less about windows seven than they did about XP. But the reality is that I think if companies had their choice, they would, stick with whatever operating system they're on. And uh, Microsoft keeps changing it on them. And they have to, to a certain degree, because they have to push people into the cloud. They have to push people into Azure. They have to push people into software as a service. And I've, I've said it on this program before, and I'll say it again. Microsoft is going to move towards a subscription service for Windows. It is coming. It may not be there. I don't know exactly what the incarnation is going to be. It might be something as simple as... Uh, you know, they offered us a subscription just for business users and maybe home users get it free or maybe there's a starter edition. I don't know, but it is coming. They are going to push people into a subscription service because it's the only way Microsoft can sell software anymore. And that's why we need Linux. And that's what the Ask Noah show is here to help you with. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. A huge thank you to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint. Coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3, LPFM, Grand Forks.